Thank you guys for joining me in that. Well, getting straight to it, uh, we are in the, a series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you are, if this is your first time joining us, the Sermon on the Mount is the collection of Jesus' most famous teachings. And so we're going to get straight into it. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 30. It should be in your programs as well. So you can look in your programs or if you have your Bibles, you turn there and just, we'll stay there. So if you keep the Bibles open and we're looking at the short passage in Matthew chapter 5. And this is Jesus teaching. He is on uh, a mount, and there are people surrounding him, listening to his teaching. And we got through a couple of the beginning of the, of the long sermon that he's giving. And starting in verse 27, we see Jesus declare to the crowds. He says, starting in verse 27, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the reading of God's word. So recently I had a conversation with a friend and we're talking about raising our children and what it's like because we both have sons. And he was mentioning how uh, his son is going to be turning a little bit older, around age 10 or so. And I was like, what's that like? Because my son, he's about age, uh, he's age six. And so he's going to be reaching age 10 soon. And we're talking about what that's like. And uh, I was like, hey, so like, what, you know, what's the conversations you have with them and so forth? And he was describing it to me and he told me, oh, and recently my friend was saying this, I actually had the sex talk with my son. And I was like, ooh, how was it? Like, what did you do? Because, you know, I imagine that moment and I imagine like, you know, hey, did you, uh, did you like go like, hey, come here, son, and come to the bed in your room and you just kind of talk about what sex is? Or did you drive to a lake and as you're fishing, you go, son, you know, this is what's, let me talk to you about sex. And what he told me is like, oh, I actually took him to a science museum. In the science museum, you kind of see all, like, the human body parts. And as they're walking, you know, you see, like, the genitalia. And he's like, so, son, this is what's going on here. And I was like, that's genius. It makes it, like, not as awkward. You're kind of looking at something that's there. And it was really helpful because if you're like me, my parents, they're Asian. And therefore, we never talk about sex. I never had the sex talk with my parents at all. Uh, and so I didn't really know how I was going to approach it with my kids. Um, but now, but you know, in the midst of that, I kind of have a better idea of what that could potentially look like. Um, and no matter what I do, though, no matter how I approach it, uh, I plan to have that talk with my son. My wife could talk to the daughters, but my son, I will make sure that I talk about that. And I'm gonna talk, I want to talk about it early uh, because we live in a highly sexualized society. Um, kids, the average age that they first hear about sex or know about sex is third grade. And so they say if you have the sex talk at third grade, you're too late. They already know by their friends. They're exposed to it. And when I think about my life, I'm like, yeah, that's about right. Uh, children are first exposed to pornography by fifth grade. That's the average age. And I actually think that's way, that's really modest. I think it's a little bit earlier because uh, I, again, think about my life. I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. And so this is kind of the world we live in. And I want to make sure I talk to my kids about this because I want to make sure that before their friends influence their view of sexuality and sex, that I could have a voice in that, that I could shape it. Because I know this, of all the topics that's out there of like money and uh, living and friendships, like this topic is really important. It's a, such an important topic because it it's, could be so confusing. It could go so right and go so wrong in so many different ways. 
And so for me, I'm like, I have to make sure that I have this conversation, that no matter what I talk about with my kids, this is, will be a conversation that we have as they get older. And I think this is what Jesus is doing with us. Jesus is describing to his followers what the kingdom of heaven is like in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, he, in the Sermon on the Mount, when, in the kingdom of heaven, it's not simply about how to be a good person, uh, but it's about how can you be truly human? What does human flourishing really look like? And so it's not this idea of just modifying your behavior, but the whole sermon, it's all about Jesus getting into the deep-rooted issues of our hearts. That's kind of what Jesus is trying to do here. And so last week we talked about how, you know, why, why are our, our relationships broken? Like, why do we have so many broken, hurt relationships in our lives? And we like to point at other situations or people, that it's because of them, but Jesus is saying, no, it's here. You're, you're angry. You have a lot of anger in your heart. You're harboring anger towards people and it's damaging. And Jesus, he, he tried to tackle that. And today, Jesus now, he's tackling our sexual practices. He wants to talk about that. And it's, it's, uh, as he brings it up and as we talk about it, I know that this is actually probably one of the most relevant topics that we could all pay attention to. Uh, but it's also, uh, it's really complicated. It's really complicated because we all come from different places. We're all coming from different contexts. Uh, some of you, you have been followers of Jesus for a long time, and you take your discipleship really seriously. You are a genuine, like, I really want to live faithfully as a Christian for my life. But this area, this topic of sex and sexuality, this is the one area that you struggle with. It's the one area that's kind of hidden, and so it's the one area that's like, functions as your source of shame, and so it's really hard for you. Um, some of you, you're, you're kind of similar but different where maybe Jesus, you know, you're, you, you kind of know him, but you grew up in a churchy environment. Like your church was very churchy. And so uh, in your formative years as a teenager, your view of sexuality, you're just used to pastors berating you, talking about be careful and so forth. And you're, the whole purity culture has kind of invaded your mind about this. And as a result, talking about sex is very awkward for you. You're that person when someone says sex, you're like, ha ha, you just kind of giggle awkwardly because you blush. It's weird, it's taboo, and therefore it's not really being developed, your idea of sex, because you just feel too cringy talking about it. Uh, some of you, you profess to be Christians, um, and you say, I believe in Jesus, I want to follow him, but your sexual habits totally contradict your profession of faith. It's radically different than what you actually say, and the reason why is because it's so normal in your context. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's practicing sex the way I'm practicing sex. So why does the church make such a big deal? And that's always kind of something puzzling. Is like, why do we even, why are people so judgy here? And that we're kind of in that world. Uh, and some of you, you're in a, in a different place where sex, uh, it's, it's hard to talk about because you're deeply scarred. Uh, you have a sexual past that you feel a lot of shame for. Or you've been, uh, you have sexual encounters with people that were uh, very aggressive. And because of that, uh, you're just really triggered by this topic, and you emotionally distance yourself from it. It is an intellectual journey only, but emotionally you just can't go there. And so we're all in different places, and I know that we're all in different places when we talk about this. Uh, but here's the thing, no, no matter what, uh, and no matter where you're coming from, this is such an important topic that we have to discuss. Just as it's important for me to talk about with my kids, Jesus sees this as something that you have to talk about when we talk about the kingdom, when we talk about life with Jesus. Because this topic, probably more than ever, is the source, again, of so much of our shame, our pain, our wounds. 
And it doesn't have to be that way, nor is it supposed to be that way. And, in, and I think the world, we're used to just trivializing this, saying, what's the big deal? But we know it's a big deal because if you've ever been sexually assaulted or had that violated, it does something to you. It's this powerful thing that really affects you, not just in your body, but in the core of your emotions and your soul, because sex is not this trivial thing like the world presents it, but it's something that's really deep to our core. And that's why Jesus said, like, we have to talk about this, because I want to get to that heart of your area. I want to go there. And so just to warn you, this might be a trigger warning message. And so I could imagine, you know, if, if, you, if you're kind of in that painful camp, this could be trigger, triggering. Uh, but Jesus, he wants to get in our business, and it's going to feel really uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. Happy Mother's Day. I, I, it's strange how, you know, I don't, I, we didn't time it this way, but this is just the way it kind of happened. Um, but I do hope, uh, no matter where you're at, you don't walk away feeling condemned or heavy or guilt-ridden. Uh, I hope we could be awakened from what Jesus says. I hope we're willing to even be corrected from what Jesus says. But I hope we could also have a feeling of hope and healing if this is an area of wound for us. And so to talk about this and to dig deep, we're going to answer three questions looking at this passage. Three questions. Question number one, what does Jesus have to say about our sexual practices? That will be the first question. What does Jesus have to really say about how we practice sex? Question number two, why does Jesus take our sexual practices so seriously? Why is he so serious about this? And then question three, what hope does Jesus offer in our sexual practices? So what does he have to say? Why does he take it so seriously? And what hope does he offer? First, what does Jesus have to say about our sexual practices? So while uh, my friend, he will, when he talked about sex, he brought his son to the museum. Uh, Jesus, when he talks about sex, he goes, let's look at the Old Testament. He's very rabbi, right? Very religious teacher. And he, he's doing what he did last week. If you're here last week, he's doing that thing where he goes, you heard it was said in the Old Testament law, but I say unto you, and he says something to talk about it. Now, we learned last week that Jesus, he is not canceling the Old Testament when he says that, but he is expanding on the meaning, saying, let me show you the deeper meaning of its application of what it's trying to say. And if you have your passage, it's in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is referring back to the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. Now, in the Ten Commandments, that word adultery, like what adultery was, was if you are a married individual, to have sexual relations with somebody who was not your spouse, that was considered adultery. And that line was the basis of the sexual ethics of Israel. That was kind of the, the line. Don't cross that line, and that's the way we flourish as a society, by not sleeping with each other's spouses. And Jesus, he affirms that. It's true. We, we, sh we flourish when we're not just all sleeping around with one another. That is, we should reserve it within the covenant of marriage. But Jesus, he goes, but that's not enough. And he takes it even further. And look what he says in verse 28. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you think about what Jesus is saying, it's pretty hardcore. Now, Jesus is not saying to have sexual desires is wrong. We're human, and God made us to have sexual desires, and that's actually natural. And Jesus is not saying it's wrong to look at somebody and acknowledge, oh, that's a pretty person, that's an attractive person. That's how we go on dates, because we're attracted to them. Uh, but this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to look at someone in a certain way, 
That's what he's pointing at. That he says, look. Now that word look is very broad in our English, but more specifically, what Jesus is talking about, it's not you're just looking going, oh, that's attractive, but you're looking at them. You're looking at that person. And as you're looking at that person, you're choosing to look at them and stay there, whether in, with your eyes or with your heart, because it is fueling the sexual desire in you. It is feeding something in you. And Jesus is saying, when you do this with another person, it's something is wrong there. And if you're somebody, especially if you're a sister and you felt that look, you know something is going on there when someone does that to you. And what Jesus is saying is, it's not just even when you're looking at them, but even in your heart. When you are gazing at someone in that way, imagining them, that is also adultery. That is also adultery. How could Jesus say this? What is, so Jesus is saying sleeping with somebody in your bed and imagining sleeping with somebody in your, in your bed, that's kind of like the same category. What's Jesus doing? Is he serious? And I think a little analogy or example might help us understand this. When my, when my wife and I first got married, we, had a, we entered a new chapter in our relationship. We're married now. A new level of commitment. And in the midst of that, I remember I was very curious, and so I'd ask my wife a lot of questions. And so I asked my, my wife one, I remember one time asking her, hey, so now that we're married, if I cheated on you, would you still be with me? Like, would you f be willing to forgive me if I cheated on you? My wife said something to the equivalent of, I kill you. You cheat on me, I kill you. It's over. You're dead to me. No forgiveness and so forth. And I was like, God, okay, so if I cheat on you, you will leave me and I'm dead. Okay, sounds good. Okay, let me ask you a second question, though. What would you do if I didn't cheat on you, but I went on a date with somebody and you didn't know? And someone at church caught me holding hands with a girl, watching a movie. Now, I didn't sleep with her. We're just watching a movie. We're just holding hands. How about then? What would you do, hon? And she responded, I kill you. It's probably over. You're dead to me and so forth. I'm like, okay, got it. Uh, third question. What if I didn't do any of that, but you found my phone? And in my phone was a bunch of text messages from a girl you don't know. And it sounds a little flirty almost of what we're doing. What would you do? My wife said, hmm, wouldn't it be over if I still kill you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, interesting, interesting. So all three scenarios are different, different degrees. Uh, but my wife was upset with all three to different degrees. Why? It's because all three are violating the same thing, which is the marriage, the covenant. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying our sexual practices outside of marriage, whether it be with your body or even with your heart and your mind, you're violating something. It's all violating the same thing. What's the violation? I, I think what Jesus is getting at, because he's a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, and it, it's violating the purpose of our sexual desires, the purpose of what sex is meant to be used for. Because sex is meant to be used as an expression of love and commitment to another person, but what we're doing when we do it the way that humans tend to do is it's transferring from love to something called lust, which is kind of becoming a churchy word now, but it was very common back then, and which is why Jesus says you're not looking just looking at them, but it's with lustful intent. And there's a big difference between those two things. Uh, with love, uh, that's the, the idea of sex and love, that goes back to the, the garden in Genesis chapter 2. I think that's where Jesus' mind is kind of at. God designed sex to be practiced in a context of marital love between two people. And its purpose is to uniquely unite and bind these two people, which is why Genesis calls it one flesh. To be physically intimate with somebody makes you one. 
And that's why, even biologically, it makes sense of why sex works the way it does. When you have sex with somebody, your body produces two things. It produces dopamine, which is, makes, it, makes you feel pleasure, because it encourages you to keep doing it, the person, over and over again. And your body also produces oxytocin, which is the attachment thing, where even babies and mothers, it's oxytocin is being produced when they're nursing. When you're having sex, you're producing oxytocin, which binds you, and you're producing dopamine. And that's kind of what sex is supposed, to, is supposed to do. It's pleasurable and attaches you. And when you have sex in the nature and the context of marital love, uh, it looks a certain way. It looks like love. What's love? First Corinthians 13 tells us and describes what love is. Love is patient. It, there's no rush. There's no rush in this. It's faithful. Love is faithful. It's long term. Love is selfless. You're looking for the good of the other person. And that's kind of what sex is supposed to reinforce. That's what love is supposed to reinforce. But when you practice sex outside the marital covenant, which is called lust, when you practice it then, the purpose, it doesn't bind two people together, but instead, what are you doing? You're taking something. You're getting something for yourself. That's why um, masturbation, oftentimes after you're done, you feel empty. You don't feel like, wow, that was amazing. After you masturbate, there's an empty feeling in you. Why? Because your body is producing dopamine, but there's no oxytocin. You're misusing what the purpose of what sex is. That's why, uh, and when couples, when they sleep together, uh, when they're not married, what happens is it's so painful, not while you're dating, when you break up, because your body was producing oxytocin, which is what binds you to. And so to break up from not just a relationship, but from that attachment biologically, really painful to recover from. Very painful. And that's why the, the nature of lust and how it plays out, it's like this deformed version of love. It's like the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. Because while 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient, there's no rush, sex in the context of lust, it's very impatient. You're always in a rush. Let's do it. While love is faithful long-term, lust is faithless short-term. It's quick. It's not binding. And while love is selfless, looking for the good of the other, lust is very selfish. You're looking, give me what I need. Give me what I need. And this is why Jesus and the New Testament writers, they get worked up about sex. When you hear them talk about sex, the reason why you feel this emphasis with them is because it has this potential to be this amazing thing. Because sex in the context of marital love is this unique power to just bind two people in a way that two people cannot be bound and it makes you feel whole because sex involves not just your body but your emotions and your soul even. But take that out of that and you put it in a context of lust, sex has power still but not the power to powerfully unique but the power to really destroy you. It has the power to really jack you. It has the power to make people feel not whole but very broken. And Jesus, that's what Jesus is saying. This is why he's so emphasizing this. It's damaging when you sleep with somebody outside of marital covenant with your body, but it's even damaging doing that with your heart, even with your mind. Now, some of us, when you hear that, you might think that sounds like a very high standard, or you might even roll your eyes like, okay, like you Christians are crazy. Like even if I imagine somebody and sleeping with them and them being naked, I'm destroying myself, like... How, how, how can that even be possible? Who's getting hurt? And here's actually, I think, where Jesus is getting at. The reason why it's even hurtful to imagine somebody like that is realize what you're doing. 
you are objectifying a human being, and both parties, you and the other person, whether they know it or not, are getting hurt by it. What do I mean? Uh, when, when you think about somebody, and they are naked in your brain, and you're imagining sexual relations with them, uh, you are doing something to the value of that person who is supposed to be valuable. You are dehumanizing somebody who is made in the image of God, and that is something that God takes very seriously. Um, you know verse 28, do you notice when Jesus is talking, it seems to be he's targeting men, very male-centric, if you lust after a woman. And, uh, you know, I used to read that thinking, oh, that makes sense because men struggle with lust and women, they don't struggle with lust, they struggle with romance only and so forth. Not true. Both parties struggle with lust, might be in unique ways, but they both struggle sexually with lust. Uh, so why is Jesus being very male-centric here? And I think the reason why is because of the history, the context they're in, first century Rome. In first century Rome, very patriarchal society, and who were the people who were always objectified? Who were the most dehumanized in Rome? It was always slaves and women. It was always women. Uh, you could not, the one rule that you could not do in sexually in Rome was you could not sleep with another man's wife. Not because she was a woman, but because she was his wife. She was property. You're, it's almost like stealing. But any other woman, fair game. You have a slave, fair game. You have someone you see who you know is a widow, fair game. Sexual assault, no problem. It wasn't a deal. It wasn't a big deal. It was, it was one historian says it's like going off the road and peeing in the toilet. That was the equivalent of what it means to just grab a woman and just fulfill your sexual needs, so long as she didn't belong to another man. And that's the world that Jesus' audience lived in. And so think about when Jesus says, hey, don't even not sleep with her, but don't even think about that. Don't even imagine a woman in that way. Do you imagine, do you see what Jesus is doing, what he's doing to dignify those who people never once thought were dignified? Sam Albury, he's an author, he says like this, quote, think about in this passage what Jesus is saying about the woman. She is not to be looked at lustfully. Jesus is saying that her sexuality is precious and valuable, that she has sexual integrity to her, which matters and should be honored by everyone else. He is saying that this sexual integrity, it is so precious that it must not be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Jesus is dignifying and elevating those who are used to being sexualized, and especially in the first century, it was the women, because you're dehumanizing them when you do that. But the second problem is if you keep doing that, not only are you dehumanizing them, but you are dehumanizing yourself. Because as human beings, we weren't meant to do this to one another. To objectify people, it makes us closer to being animals than it does to being human. Because uh, this is, uh, when you, animals, they can't control their desires, right? They see a piece of meat, they just eat it. That makes you an animal. Versus if I was like, I see food, like, oh, and I just tackle it. It's like, control yourself. I'm not an animal, I'm a human being. And sexual desire is kind of the same way. And this is the, the lie of the modern culture. At the heart of our modern culture says you need to unleash your sexual desires. If you feel it, you just go for it. That leads to freedom. That leads to human flourishing. Uh, but that is such a unique modern thing. Every ancient society, and it doesn't have to be Christian, every even secular society before us says that we have, humans have good desires and we have evil desires. And what separates us from, being, from bestiality is that we can control the evil desires and really leverage the good desires. But if we don't do that, we aren't just harming others, but we're doing something to ourselves. Again, Sam Aubrey, he says again, quote, this is what lust does, though. 
It reduces how we see others, and in the process, it dehumanizes us. We become those who see less and less of the humanity of others, and that is not the way that human beings are meant to function. And so, when we ask, what does Jesus have to say about our sexual practices, one way we summarize it is, all of us are broken. All of us have broken practices. Because all of us, we are sexualizing, objectifying people all the time in our minds and nobody knows it. Or we are sexualizing ourselves and objectifying ourselves for others to be able to be drawn to us. Whatever it is, it is dehumanizing, it is, it is objectifying. Uh, I like one illustration, it's, uh, it's like getting a book and you, what we do with people is we treat them like books where we love the cover, but we don't bother to read what the book is about. We don't care what their names are, we don't care what their fears are, what their hopes are, what their occupation is, how their mother views them, what their father is like, what their siblings are like. We just care about the cover. That's all we care about and you're not dignifying what is in the book when you do that. And Jesus is trying to say the same thing. When you do that with people who are way more important than books, you are not you're not dignifying the way that they're supposed to be. And by not doing that, you're doing something to yourself too. And that's all of us. That's all of us. And this is the first step into the kingdom of heaven, is recognizing that we do this all the time. All the time. Now here's the thing. We all do this. We all struggle in this to some extent. But I don't, this is not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not that we do this, because this happens. But the biggest problem is we do this and we don't care. We don't care. We are so desensitized that we just think it's okay. And that leads to the second point. Why does Jesus take our sexual practices so seriously? So after Jesus says that adulterers, it's not just sleeping with someone, but it's even imagining it, Jesus goes, and here's the solution. You want to see how you battle that? Look at verse 29 and 30. Jesus says, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Oh, your eyes causing you to lust other people? Just rip that thing out. Your hand? Oh, chop that thing off. It's like, whoa. So our application today is after service, we're all going to give you a knife. We're all going to be in our community groups, and we're all going to just chop things. And it's like, you know, if you take it, that's what Jesus means, then that's maybe a possible application. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, we miss the point if we think Jesus is saying that. Because if you, if you chop off your hand and your eye, you, your heart's still there. So you still have the same problem. So, so what's Jesus trying to do here? Why is Jesus offering this resolution? And I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get us to really pay attention to the problem. If I had a cut in my leg... And I was like, oh, it's kind of hurting, but, you know, it should be okay. But I, it keeps getting bigger. And I go to the hospital, and the doctor goes, hey, that cut? Yeah, you have to lose the leg now. I'd be like, lose my leg? Why? I better be dying to, before I cut off my leg. It's like, yeah, it's that serious. If he told me amputation was needed, there must be something really wrong with that cut. That it's costing me my life that I've got to cut my leg off before then. I think that's what Jesus is doing right here. Jesus is saying, dude... Your sexual habits, it's so serious. It is so, so serious that it's better to lose your hand, to lose that eye, to amputate yourself before you keep going. Before you keep going throughout your week, it's better to do that because it is that serious. And when we hear that, Jesus, it's, he sounds so extreme. That sound, even him saying it's so serious like that, it sounds extreme because, again, we are so desensitized 
and even blind to the way sexuality works, especially in our modern culture. I mean, elephant in the room, we live in a culture where pornography, premarital sex, is just so normal. It is so normalized today. Porn is a $90 billion industry that is more than the NFL, the Major League Baseball, the NBA, all that combined. Porn makes more money than all that. 90% of boys will be exposed to pornography before age of 18. That's 90%. Nine out of 10 of our children's ministry boys, they will have seen porn before the age of 18. 60% of girls are exposed before age of 18. All the internet search engines that's going on right now, one-fourth, 25% of them are pornographic. That means one out of four people are searching for porn right now on the internet. 70% of men and 20% of women say they watch porn once a month. Seven out of 10 people, two out of, two out of 10. Porn has more internet traffic than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. More people are looking at porn. Uh, and even more so, 96% of adults think watching porn is normal. That's just, the, that's just what boys and girls do. That's how you learn about sex. It's a normal part of life. Nine out of 10, 96% of people. Most younger people, Gen Z, they see not recycling as being way worse than watching porn. To not recycle, oh, that's horrible. Porn, uh, but oh, you better recycle. The average age of someone's first sexual encounter in this country is age 15. 55% of men and women, they have sex by the age of 18. That's half of the people. 20 to 30% of women are sexually assaulted. That's, that's the country we live in. It's normal. It's all very normalized. And personally, I know these stats, it's, it's not just people out there. It's not like the, the country or the world, but it's applicable to us here in this very room as a church. I know there are people here who are deeply trapped in porn. Like it, you're trapped. You are trapped and shackled. I know there's people here like masturbation is just your thing. It's just this cycle to relieve work stress and to relieve relational stress. I know people, some people here were sleeping around and nobody knows it, but we're just sleeping around. I know some of us were dating a boyfriend or girlfriend and we're having sex and it's kind of just, it's normal. It's, everyone's doing it because that's the air that we breathe. And as I say all that, I'm not saying going, how dare you? I say all that because I have so much empathy because look at the world that we live. It is so freaking hard to be sexually okay. I mean, you have access to Twitter and, and Instagram. We have, we have this. You can literally drive home from this message and watch porn on your phone and nobody would know. We have Tinder where you can actually meet up, shack up, break up, and nobody knows. And it's right there on the phone. It's so easy. And nobody's asking you about it. We don't ask each other about that in our community groups. It's kind of awkward. It's kind of strange. And we don't share about it. It's kind of awkward, it's kind of strange. And again, as I say all this, it, I have nothing but empathy. It is so hard today, because we have so much accessibility and nobody's talking about it. But here's the problem. The problem is not when we find ourselves trapped like this, the problem is when we're trapped and we don't care. We don't care. And what Jesus is saying is, if you keep living that way though, if you don't interrupt that pattern, you're going to experience consequences worse than having one hand. You know, to lose a hand would be very inconvenient in life. Life would be almost seen as tragic. And what Jesus is saying is that's our situation with our sexual practices, that's way more tragic. 
you're going to experience way more consequences, which is why twice Jesus says, better to lose a member than be thrown to hell. He says it twice. He's saying there's consequences that come with it. What are those consequences? There's a macro level, there's kind of a micro level, and it's kind of like personal level that I think is kind of there. At a, at a macro level, culturally, by seeing sex just kind of being like, oh, we just kind of do it and so forth, you see what damage it's doing slowly in our Western culture, because this is an experiment. This isn't something normal, the way we practice sex. And it all began in the 1960s. You could arguably say it all began in the 1960s with the sexual revolution where it said, hey, let's be, you know, let's be open, let's be free, and that's going to lead to freedom and flourishing, to not be sexually repressed. Freud was right, that's the 1960s, which is no coincidence where in the 1970s it led to easy divorce culture where all of a sudden divorce became statistically higher and higher. And then in the 1980s it led to the breakdown of the nuclear family where families were continually being broken and shattered. That led to the 1990s, which is the rise of hookup culture where people just hooked up, shacked up, break up. And then the early 2000s, it led to the redefinition of sexuality. And now today, you know what today the struggle is? It's the end of sex. Do you hear that Gen Z, they are the least likely generation ever to have sex, premarital sex. They're not sleeping around with each other. And it's not because they're protecting their sexuality. You know what the number one reason is, right? It's porn. Why have sex with the real thing when I have easy access to better looking women? So they're not having sex anymore. They're going to have this predicted we're going to have less children than ever. It's affecting everything. Human trafficking in this country, and not, I'm not talking about like in Thailand or so forth, in the United States, human trafficking is a $9.5 billion industry in the United States. Who's watching these kids sexualizing themselves? We are. Because where do those kids go? It's pornography. It's not the porn industry. That was in the 90s. It is a much bigger thing. There's a demand for this, and so people are feeding it. And the average person who is a human trafficked, they are ages 12 to 14, and they're young girls. It is affecting things that we never thought would affect things in a global or in an international, not international, domestic, large scale. Now, that's culturally, and for a lot of us, that sounds tragic, very removed. Are we really going to feel the consequences that badly? Well, this is where the second part we feel it is relationally. We feel it relationally. You know, I, I do premarital counseling with people, and they'll ask me, hey, what's the, you know, we're, we're sleeping together, we're not married, but what's the big deal? We're going to get married anyways. So we're just kind of learning, we're just practicing. Or other couples will say, well, I have a porn habit, and, you know, we watch porn, and what's the big deal? Is it, I'll, I'll stop as soon as I get married. And, you know, so how does it play out relationally? If you read the statistics, they'll say, well, it does play out. I mean, your sex performance, sometimes it, it's kind of off because you're so used to, Pornography and porn sex, and so it plays out in your marriage, and so you have intimacy issues that are there, or it plays out in uh, divorce. It's statistically just there. You can look up in the research, uh, divorce people, it's usually a higher percentage of porn use or premarital sex. Same with adulteries, just the percentages, it's, it's all higher. Um, but those are, again, extreme examples. I feel like most of us, that's kind of like more at the margins, uh, but it's much more subtle the way it plays out, the consequences relationally, and I think the subtle way it plays out is how we love and serve our spouses. That's where you're going to see it play out. Marriage requires so much sacrificial love where you choose to not do things that you want to do, but you choose to do the things that your wife and your husband and your children want to do. But if you are so used to practicing sexual lust where it's about you, where you are taking, where you are taking, where you are taking, no surprise that when you have to give all of a sudden in marriage, that it's hard. No surprise that the main complaint our spouse has about us is because we're selfish. 
Because marriage, it is going against what we're used to in our single life. I like what one author says. He says, quote, Satan wants us to learn to resist service and to pursue selfishness. If we learn to do what we want, when we want, before marriage, we'll carry that pattern into the days and the years that follow. This, however, is deadly. Love in marriage is shown by a thousand daily decisions to do what you don't want. If your relationship, though, before marriage is characterized by giving into urges of immediate desire, you will most certainly struggle when you encounter the nitty-gritty of married life. So we see it affecting us culturally, large-scale. We see sexual lust affecting us relationally if we keep doing it. But even personally, it affects us, even if nobody knows it. Uh, you know, many people who are indulging in pornography or just sleeping around, uh, the common factor that happens isn't that their sex life is great. The common factor is the empty feeling that kind of arises. Um, and the way, you know, you know, when you kind of think of people who indulge in that, I, the one comparison thing I have is, uh, you ever see celebrities that get, like, a lot of plastic surgeries? And you're like, dude, like, just stop. <laughs> like, you got to stop. Because they are ruining their the looks and how they look like. And you almost wonder, why are you doing that? Like, why do you keep getting plastic surgery? And if you look at, if you ever see the interviews, all of them say the same thing. They all say the reason why they're doing it is because they're chasing a type of beauty that they could not sustain. But they're chasing it. They're chasing it. It was just getting more messy and messy, though. And I think that's the same, the similar struggle that people who indulge in pornography and sleeping around struggle with. We're all chasing something. We're chasing intimacy. We want to be intimate. We want to be known, and we want to be loved by somebody. But we're looking at it for all the wrong places. But we're so hungry for it. We're so hungry for it. So we keep looking. We keep looking. We keep looking. And again, Rebecca McLaughlin. I love the way she says it. She says, "Quote: We are all more prone to eat junk food when we are hungry." And we are all the more prone to seek illicit relationships when our core relational needs are not being met. Most people who indulge in porn or sleep around, it's not because they're horny. It's because they're lonely. It's because they're lonely. That's why when you look statistically, it's always those engaging, sleeping around. It's just out there sociologically. You are depressed. You are lonely when you're seeking it. And after you do it, you're even more depressed and you're even more lonely. Most people who struggle, who have a history sexually, you have mental health issues with depression because you are, you are trying to chase a black hole that you cannot fill. And the more you can't fill it, the more that black hole feels bigger. And that's kind of what we're all doing. And we're all kind of feeling more and more empty because of that as we indulge in this. And these are the consequences. This is what happens to us. And Jesus, he wants us to pay attention to this. He wants us to see this is a big deal. Single people, college students, people who are living by themselves, you have porn addictions. It's just kind of your thing that you do. And we don't deal with it. It's just kind of normalized because we don't see the consequences yet. We don't see it playing out. But your brain is literally being rewired. And you're going to see the consequences when you try to be really intimate with somebody. Usually marriage. They could play out in other relationships. That's when it really starts to play out. And we might need help. We might need help before we get to a bigger hole where it leads to something worse. If you're dating, you know, some of us were sleeping together with our boyfriend or girlfriend, and we don't think it's a big deal. Because we're going to marry each other, and it's, it should all be good. But again, realize you're indulging in a type of, type of deformed love that's more seeking to take than to, to give. There's a type of feeding of narcissism that's going on in the midst of that. And again, you'll see it play out in your, in your marriage in subtle, in subtle ways. And it might mean that we have to have a difficult conversation with our boyfriend or girlfriend. 
Um, if you're married here, everyone thinks you're okay. All the singles think, oh, the married people here, they're okay. We're all good because marriage, it fulfills us sexually and we never struggle once you're married. Uh, but do you realize the majority of Jesus' audience, they're all married? Jesus is talking to a bunch of it's, uh, married people at the Sermon on the Mount because he knows we struggle. He knows it's hard even in marriage because marriage is not the solution to our sexual struggles. And that leads to the last point. What hope does Jesus have to offer? What hope does Jesus have to offer? Jesus confronts all of us in our sexual brokenness and we all might be feeling a sense of shame uh, if we, as we hear what the implications are, including myself. Uh, I sometimes wonder if my wife knew what was going on in my brain, like if she saw, like it was a Black Mirror episode, and she saw everything that went on in my brain every single day, oh man, I could just hear the words, I kill you, it's over, <laughs> like you're dead, I could just hear it. Because my brain, it happens, right? It's so hard. I sometimes wonder what my friends would think if they knew my sexual struggles, they might think, oh, they might judge me or think, oh, how do you think that stuff? I wonder you as a church, if you knew like my sexual history and the things that kind of went in my brain in the past, like, oh my gosh, that's our pastor? What kind of church is this? And you might want to leave. I, I imagine there's a lot of, and I think a lot of us feel that way too. There's a lot of that feeling of shame. And so we don't, we hide it, we bury it, we don't expose it to anybody because we feel like we're going to be rejected by everybody who sees it. But this is where the good news comes in, where Jesus, he sees your dating history he knows your thought history. He knows your internet search history that you clean up. He saw every single thing that's there. But he still invites you to be with him. He still says, come to the kingdom. In fact, he says, you're the one who I'm looking for. You're the one with the particular invite. Come to the kingdom. Because only when you come into the kingdom, only when you're with Jesus, can you be healed. Try all you want with willpower to fix that. Jesus is saying, that's not going to work. Come to me. Come to the kingdom. Come in my presence. And you'll start to see something different. Because Jesus, he could do things for us that we can't do for ourselves. In particular, let me highlight a couple of them before we close. Number one is this. In Christ, when you come to Jesus, you will know that there's forgiveness. You're forgiven for all that, for your sexual history. You're forgiven. You know, naturally, like I mentioned, when we think about our sexual past, we hide from everybody. And the one person we especially hide from is God. And it, it shows up in indirect ways. Like I remember a brother telling me before, like he, uh, the, he goes to church every Sunday. The only Sundays he doesn't go to church is when he masturbates on Saturday. And when that happens, he just can't go to church because he feels so yucky. And I, again, I understand. That's the human natural heart. We want to run away and hide, especially from God, when we feel kind of sexually dirty. Uh, but what's really interesting is when you read someone like King David in the Old Testament who did way worse sexual stuff than anyone in this room. I mean, he found the girl attractive who was married. He killed her husband. He slept with her, impregnated her all before they got married. That was King David. And when David realized what he had done and he realized how sexually broken he was, David responds in the complete opposite way that all of us respond, which isn't that he hid from the temple and just hid in the corner. But he went directly to God, and we see his confession to God in Psalm 51, where he just kind of confesses to him. And it's really interesting, why would David do that? Why does David say, for example, in Psalm 51, he says, quote, Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. It's that last part. David know who God, who, who God is. If you ever go on Twitter before, not many Asians are on there, but if you're on there, you know on Twitter, people tweet all the time, like their thoughts. Uh, but some Twitter accounts, they have what's called a pinned tweet, which is you'll see a tweet from years ago that's pinned to the top. And the reason why, and so when you go on the profile, you'll see that pinned tweet. And the reason why you see that pinned tweet is because people want people to know that's the first thing you see about me when you see my Twitter profile. That, that encapsulates who I am, this pinned tweet that's there. If God had a pinned tweet, if he had Twitter and he pinned a tweet, you know what it would probably say? I am a gracious, compassionate, and merciful God. It is the most repeated way he describes himself in the Bible. I am a gracious, compassionate, merciful God. Everyone else might shame you. Everyone else might be like, oh, gross. Have you ever told them even a percentage of what you struggle with? But God is making the emphasize the first thing before you talk to me is I am a gracious, compassionate, merciful God. No matter what you've done or what someone did to you, I am safe. I will respond with grace. And when you experience that, where you actually go, someone actually accepts me in the midst of that. There is so much healing that happens in that. There is so much light that just kind of shed and air that's breathed into this thing that called shame. And that is the first thing that we need is to accept that there is someone who will dignify us even when we haven't dignified ourselves. That's what Christ does for us. Come to him and there is forgiveness. But even more than forgiveness, the second thing he does is there is transformation. There's change. The worst lie that we could ever fall into when it comes to this topic is I am so deep in it that there is no hope. I'm stuck. We're stuck. We can't get out of our sexual habits. I can't get out of my sexual habits. We tried everything. We tried internet filters, covenant eyes. We made vows never again. We did purity rings and so forth. And we always mess up. And we go, you know, it's because I'm just stuck. And it's messed up. And here's what I'd actually push back on. I would argue, uh, as helpful as those things might be, you know what's more helpful than all those things combined? Spend five to ten minutes in the presence of God every single day. That will do probably more for you sexually than all the filters that are there. And here's why. When you are spending time in the presence of God, in the spirit of God, the spirit of God is meant to do something for you. And we often think God's going to help me sexually by killing my sex drives, but it's not working, so what's happening? That's not the Spirit's job, to kill our sex drives. The Spirit's role is to make Jesus look glorious to us. And when Jesus is looking glorious to us, sex and all the sexual morality that's there, it's the glory gets a little bit less attractive. A few years ago, I took my kids, ages uh, four and six at the time, or three, who knows, something young. I took them to Disneyland. And when we got to Disneyland, you know what the one ride they wanted to ride on? The merry-go-round. That's all they wanted to ride on. I'm like, dude, we could do this at South Coast Plaza. We paid hundreds of dollars to be at Disneyland. We're riding the merry-go-round over and over again. And at one point, it was like, enough. Let's go to Dumbo. Let's go to Alice in Wonderland. They're like, no, I want the merry-go-round. I had like pushed them like, oh, let's go, let's go. We went on it. They loved it. They loved it. They kept going on it. Later on, I was like, hey, want to go to merry-go-round? They're like, nah, forget it. Only the line short. Let's go on the Dumbo ride. What happened? I wasn't telling them don't go on the merry-go-round. I was like, look at here. Look at this. And that's what the Spirit does for us. 
The Spirit does not kill our sex drives. The Spirit's pointing us to Jesus, saying, this, is, this, is, this feels glorious, way more glorious. And if we spend time with the Lord we'll, and the Spirit just moves, that is the greatest thing that the Spirit could do to help us in this journey. And lastly, lastly before we close, in Christ we're forgiven, in Christ we're transformed, but in Christ we're not alone. Jesus is not talking to you, individual Christian, about your sexuality. He's talking to us, the community. He's creating a new community, saying together, this is our sex ethic. This is how we practice it. The church is an alternate community, different from the world, where our sexual practices, it's a new normal. And that's why it's so interesting. In the first century, historians will say, you know, the early church, they were known for the sexual purity that made the Roman world confused. And it wasn't because they were more holy than us. It wasn't because they had stronger willpower than us. It was because the early church, they had something that was radically different back then that we, we struggle with even today was this. Nobody was lonely. In the early church, they were all intimately connected to one another. And we talked about earlier that what drives the sexual urges that we have, it's loneliness. It's intimacy. And the church, what they did is that intimacy is here. It is here where you can be intimate and feel relationally filled in different pockets. You can have transparency where there's confession that's there. And that's what made the church so powerful in their sexual practices. They were together collectively, worshiping collectively, being transformed collectively, being forgiven collectively, sharing life together collectively. And so for some of us here, as we hear all this, it sounds so impossible. But the only reason why it sounds and feels is because we haven't perhaps included Jesus enough in this area of our lives. Some of us need to really go to him. Remembering he's a gracious, compassionate God. Might need to spend that time, five, ten minutes. Or might for some of us, we need community more than we realize. And so today, as we celebrate Mother's Day, men, let's honor our moms, uh, but let's also honor all women. They are made in the image of God, they're called to be respected, not just our hands, but our hearts. And women, I hope that we can do the same. Where we objectify men, we objectify other people, we objectify ourselves. But may we remember, they are made in the image of God. And even if, they have, if men have objectified women or we objectify them, we are meant to honor and show them grace. And that's what makes the church a city on a hill that stands out differently. As I invite the praise team up, can I lead us in a time of prayer? Again, I know this is a triggering thing and we're all in different places. But can I just invite us, whatever rises to the top, whether it be you are, uh, for some reason, there is a deep sense of apathy that's still there. Maybe Jesus' words, it just needs to be a little more serious in us. And we need to pray about that. Or for some of us, it might be a deep sense of shame that's there. And maybe we need to remember the gracious and compassionate nature of who God is. Or for some of us, it might be that we are just confused. There's a lot of different thoughts that are going in our brain. Whatever it might be, can we take a moment just to pause, even just to be still, and if whenever you're ready, just to share with the Lord what's your, what you're feeling, what are your thoughts in this area of your life. And then afterwards, I'll close this all in prayer. So let's take a moment to pray.